Well, good morning, Gospel Hope. And as you know, over the last several weeks, we have been working through our series entitled True Treasure. And so we reached the end of that series uh, by looking at the parable of the prodigal son. Many of us have heard this story, but uh, I want to pray for us. And then we're going to unpack that and see exactly how the story of the prodigal son helps us understand true treasure. Father, in the name of Jesus, I come before you this morning and I am delighted with every single opportunity to both peer into your word and to have you to show me myself and to give me a more clear view of my world and to also educate me on the nature of my Savior, to give me, Lord God, fresh insights into your character and to your capabilities, to give me, Lord God, a fresh and more complete view of my own sin and where I need to cease and desist with current uh, attitudes, Lord God, that are running uh, contrary to your will. I thank you, Lord God, for the correction that comes from your word. I thank you for the instruction on how to handle real-time life scenarios that I may be faced with. I thank you, Lord God, for the unique equipping that comes from your word. And I ask that also those who are listening would benefit likewise, oh God, from the great gems and glories of your word. Uh, help us now as we look, Lord God, at this story of the prodigal son to see ourselves, to see our Savior, and to see something about our salvation that needs, Lord God, refinement. Uh, so, Lord God, help us now. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn with me in them to Luke chapter 15. You may already be there. Luke chapter 15 is home to this classic Bible story entitled The Prodigal Son. I want to first point out that uh, The Prodigal Son belongs to a series of three messages preached by Jesus in rapid succession, a lost son, a lost coin, and also a lost sheep. And in each one of those messages, Jesus seems to really be driving home this deep sense of value that we should have or treasuring that we should have for the lost. That is that we should treasure the lost the same way that he treasures the lost. And so, um, you know, often when the Bible communicates something in triplicate, like holy, 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 it's really the Lord's way of saying this desires to be bolded, underlined, and also circled. Or at other times when we saw some of the uh, patriarchs of the faith, like Joseph, maybe he was interpreting a dream for uh, one of the pharaohs, and that same dream would be iterated twice. And uh, Joseph would tell us that the, when, when the Lord would double down or double click on a message like that, it would be indicating that it was both certain and it was quick and it was imminent uh, in many ways. And so here we are again with a triple uh, 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 click on uh, the story of how God values the lost and how lostness should register in a certain way in our hearts when we see it at work within the, our fellow man. Also, don't forget that in the book of Luke, it is home. It, it, it's its primary verse or one of its central verses is where Jesus says, uh, I came to seek and save that which is Loss. And so um, uh, the parable of the prodigal son or the story of the prodigal son is a pivotal piece of work uh, in this kind of uh, grand scheme of helping us reframe our value system uh, to treasure those things around the same thing that the Lord treasures. And so I want to read the story of the prodigal son for us this morning, and then I'm going to uh, just kind of preach through it. So if you would join me in your Bibles, the story reads this way. And he uh, said there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property uh, between them. 
And not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. And so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country. And when he sent him, and then he sent him out to his fields to feed pigs. And when he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's servants or hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer to be worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now is found. And they began to celebrate. Now the older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called to one of the servants and asked, what is the meaning of these things? And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed a fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. And his father came out and entreated him. And he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your commands. And yet you never gave me a young goat but I that, I, that you might celebrate with me and my friends. But when this son of yours came, who devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fatted calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for, for excuse me, and this your brother was dead and now is alive. He was lost, but now he is Found. This is the story of the prodigal son. So one of the aims of our series has really, again, to been to 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 help us refine um, our treasure and the things that we truly treasure in life. And I believe that the story of the prodigal son helps us in just a handful of ways to really take a close look at what we treasure and how we treasure things. Uh, when I think about this story, I, I think about another story from my own personal life and a good friend of mine by the name of Sean Love. You can look him up on Facebook if that's where you're listening. He's a pastor of River Rouge Bible Fellowship up in Detroit. And I remember over 20 some odd years ago uh, when Sean, who was an avid comic book collector, had a very vast uh, classic collection of comic books, met a young woman. Uh, met a young woman who today is his wife of over 20 plus years. And, uh, but when they first met, Sean didn't really have a lot of possessions, but what he did have was this very valuable, highly treasured comic book collection. And uh, as a statement of his devotion and love for her, because he treasured her above his comic book collection, he actually traded in, cashed in his comic book collection in order to procure uh, an engagement ring for his now wife. 
What a romantic story, but not just a romantic story. I want you to see something else. I want you to see what happened in Sean's life. It wasn't that comic books suddenly became worthless to him or that the comic books lost their value or they were no longer a great investment. It's just that what happened was in Sean's heart, his treasure changed. What he treasured changed greatly. There was something else in his life that was far more worthy than, what else, than anything else in his life that he had placed worth and value on. I believe that moments like that are not just the stuff of romance novels and previous friends of mine who happen to be pastors of River Rouge Bible Fellowship, uh, but I believe that stories like that are regularly presented to us in the course of our regular everyday lives because the Lord wants to help us go through a treasure change. And so the title of today's message is this, do you have any change? Do you have any change? Because I believe that God wants to change what we treasure. This is an ongoing part of our sanctification in our life is that God is regularly challenging what we treasure so that we can have a change in treasure. And I believe that the story of the prodigal son uh, gives us three real pillars or, 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 or principles that outline the way in which God changes what we treasure, not just challenges, but also ultimately changes the things that we treasure. So let's begin to work through today's passage and look at this. So in the very first section, we see uh, the prodigal son, the younger of the two brothers, going to his father and saying, give to me now my inheritance. Now, traditionally within the Jewish family, this inheritance was not to be distributed unless, uh, well, until the death of the father. But the younger son, uh, without contest, uh, as we see in the, in the passage, uh, requests that his portion of his goods, his portion of the inheritance be given to him right now. And the father acquiesces to the request. And then, of course, as you can see, the son, uh, the younger son, encounters a series of difficulties that result in him essentially being totally bankrupt. And I want to follow some of those because I believe that first episode, this first group of verses, really help us to see one of the first ways that God challenges or changes how or what we treasure. So the Lord changes what we treasure by showing us the emptiness of chasing fullness apart from his presence. God, first and foremost, will change what we treasure by allowing us to sometimes get exactly what we request and what we want, but allow us to see the emptiness of looking for fullness in places and things other than his presence. So notice what the Bible tells us, that once the young son um, received his inheritance and he got his bag, if you will, he immediately gathered. Then he says that he journeyed to a far place and then he squandered it. And then he spent everything. He encountered a famine and then he began to be in need. And then he contracted or hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him to go feed pigs. This is just a deplorable season of decline for the young son. And it really reminds me of another passage uh, of scripture here that Paul gives us in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 6, verses 9 through 10. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation 
into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. And so the Bible tells us really that what happened to the younger son was his love for money really gave root or really gave birth to a lot of different snares and, and forms of destruction and, and, and difficulties in his life. But one of the first things that happened, you'll notice that his love for possessions, his love for fulfillment, his love for satisfaction apart from his father's pres presence first showed up in him desiring to get away from his dad's controlling eyes. He wanted to vacate the father's presence and go away to a far country. Now what's interesting about this is that as he gathered, wandered, squandered, and floundered, we see the evidences of what this emptiness looks like. There is a very empty life to be had when one is chasing after transitory or fleeting and temporal possessions. The evidences of these emptinesses are really revealed in the things that happen in the life of the prodigal. Look at this very carefully. The moment that the prodigal son left his father's presence in pursuit of really just fulfilling all of his uh, uh, earthly desires, here's what happened. He gathered, he took a journey, went to a far country, and there it says in verse uh, 13 that he squandered all his property. One of the first evidences of emptiness is a absence of wisdom. You see, squander, to squander one's possessions, this, these riches that he rightfully possessed, they were his to have because they were part of his inheritance that the father gave him. So they weren't, it wasn't ill-gotten gain, but he lacked the wisdom to handle it or to steward it well. But, and, what was the, and where did the lack of wisdom come from? He had vacated the father's presence. And so one of the first aspects of emptiness that enters into our life when we have a love or a treasuring for money uh, more than we do for the presence of God is we lose access to his great wisdom on how to manage wealth well. And so it says that he, uh, um, he squandered it all. But not only did he squander it, but through this uh, loss of wisdom, but it also tells us that after he had squandered his wealth, that he encountered or entered into a season of famine. And so not only did he lose wisdom, but he was also absent, uh, absent of the wherewithal to really endure famine. Famines happen in everyone's lives, but there is a wisdom and a wherewithal, a strengthening that the presence of God can give us to be able to pull through. The presence of God is able to help people in times of great need and times of great wealth. But regardless of those, if we are if we're anchored in God, he shows us how to endure famine. I bring to my I want to bring to your mind the situation that happened in Egypt when Joseph, who did not run from his father, he was kind of forced out of his family. But notice how Joseph's kept close to God. And when Egypt found themselves in a season of famine, it was Joseph who actually had a wise plan to help the nation weather the storm. You see, God, when we stick close to him, is able to give wisdom on how not to squander that which we possess, but also give us wisdom on how to have the wherewithal, the capacity to actually weather lean times. But the prodigal son lost that when he vacated the presence of God. He is experiencing the second iteration of emptiness. The first one is a lack of wisdom, therefore he squandered his wealth, a lack of wherewithal, therefore he could not weather 
consider the, the issues and the weight of a famine. But there's a third thing that happened in verse 15, and I want you to pay careful attention. It says that after he found himself to be in great need, so now he has lost all the wealth that he left with. He's lost wealth, so he has a lack of wisdom, a lack of wherewithal, and a lack of wisdom and a lack of wealth to function with. He has now lost what I believe to be a great sense of self-awareness. Why, why do I say that? The Bible says that he has hired himself out to the people of that far country, and they sent him into the fields to feed pigs. Now, you should understand that Jesus' primary target audience in this story that he's telling is the Jewish community. So the idea that a young Jewish boy who comes from a rich family would find himself in slavery or debt servitude, because this is really the ground zero of how slavery in the ancient Near East took place, a person who was in debt or out of income having to hire themselves out or contract themselves out to someone else just to survive. And he's done this, obviously, in a Gentile region, because who else would own a a field full of pigs, right? So he is not only outside of the normal uh, uh, regions in which he would do relationship away from his people, he is also now in a very degrading place in life. And this will happen when we pursue pleasure over the presence of God. When we treasure pleasure over the presence of God, we will find ourselves doing some things that we thought we would never do. I can assure you that as a young Jewish boy, the young man never grew up running around on the merry-go-round or playing with his dreidel and said to his father, Dad, one day I dream of leaving home, losing all my wealth, and feeding pigs in a field. No Jewish person would ever imagine that on their worst enemy because they don't like pigs. But I want you to consider for a moment what that might mean for us, regardless of your predilections toward pork. The point of the story is the further we get from God's presence and the, the greater dependence we have on our own resources, the greater emptiness we seem to feel or the greater emptiness we seem to experience an absence of wisdom an absence of wherewithal, an absence of real wealth, and an absence of self-awareness. This man has now degraded himself. He's living out not his best life now, but his most depraved life. And this also just reminds me of the rhetorical question asked in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, one of my favorite passages, I don't know why, but it says this, our hearts are desperately wicked above all things. Who can know it? In other words, you and I don't even realize how low we can go. And that's exactly what has happened in this particular passage. This young man has gone lower than he ever imagined he could go. But how did he get there? By treasuring pleasure above treasuring the presence of his father. And so will be our story as well if we're not careful to have a change in treasure. So God challenges or changes our treasure by allowing us to experience the emptiness of searching for fullness in places other than his presence. And so not only is there an emptiness of wisdom, an emptiness of wherewithal, an emptiness of self-awareness, but oh my goodness, it gets even worse. Look at verse 16. And as he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. So not only has he departed from the presence of his father, not only has he depleted all of his wealth, not only has he demoralized himself by becoming a pig feeder, but now he has become so degraded in his own self-worth that he is ready to eat the food that belongs to the pigs. I don't know if you've ever fed pigs or seen them eat, 
But it's one thing to be disgusted by the eating of pigs. But man, can you imagine being so low in life that you want to eat what pigs eat? This brother has hit rock bottom. But why? Because he sought fullness apart from the Lord's presence. And the Lord is allowing, the Father is allowing him to experience this emptiness. Notice that as the son chose to depart from home with all of his wealth, the father did not chase after him. He allowed him to experience this. This reminds me of some of the stories of Israel when they would tempt God in the wilderness and complain against him and ask for quail or ask for meat because they got tired of eating manna. The Bible tells us that the Lord gave them quail. They had it coming out of their noses. And while it was yet in their teeth, they were still chewing it. It says that they also felt a leanness in their souls. In other words, they realized that because while their bellies were full, that they had really had an, while their bellies were full, they were really empty of fellowship and favor with God. This is why the Lord wants to challenge our treasure and wants to change our treasure. He'll show us that we need to change our treasure by revealing to us very existentially the emptiness of anything that we chase for fullness apart from his presence. I recently uh, uh, completed a, uh, a movie that's trending or a show or whatever you want to call it. It's trending on Netflix called The Good Place. Uh, if you're familiar with this show, there's a five individuals or four or five individuals who are involved in kind of this experiment of creating The Good Place, which is this analogy for heaven. And they all uh, in the in the final season uh, effectively create this place where they can have, you know, one person wants to, to have a room filled with all of the philosophy books that one can imagine so he can explore the great truths of the world. And so he finally gets that and then he gets bored. Uh, there's another person who loves video games and hot wings, and he has more video games and hot wings than he can uh, possibly imagine all the time. And then once he has his fill, he is finally bored. And the story goes on and on, like where each one of the characters find out that once they have created this place that is filled with endless pleasures, it still is a place of great emptiness. Why? Because the one thing that makes heaven really heaven, the centerpiece, the person of God was missing. Now, they never came to that conclusion because their idea or their definition of heaven was just this advanced, unlimited place filled with all the things that we pleasure here. But note that any place that even has unlimited pleasures of all of our choosing, the great vending machines of our vivid imaginations, eventually it ceases to satisfy because we were made for fellowship with God. We were made for worship with God. We were created in his image by him and for him. We are supposed to be with God and everything that we do in this life, looking to satisfy and find fulfillment, it will always fall short of what the Lord ultimately has to offer. It doesn't mean that the temporary pleasures of this life are evil, but they are nothing in comparison to the fulfillment offered by God himself. And so the Lord changes our treasure. He'll change what we treasure by allowing us to experience the emptiness, again, of anything we pursue for fullness apart from his presence. The Lord wants us to know simply this, that even after everything has left you, that he will never leave you. This is an interesting. So, so here's how the Lord underscores uh, uh, this treasure change. He allows us to experience this deep emptiness. And then once everything else depleted, is depleted, he's still there. He's the one thing that never leaves us. Or according to Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6, it goes this way. 
Keep your life free from the love of money and be content in what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And so we say confidently, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Those uh, two statements might seem disjointed, but they are really quite connected. What he's saying is, man, if you fall in love with money, if that's your chief treasure, you'll eventually find out how transitory or how, uh, uh, how prone to expiration that is. But the Lord's presence is never prone to expiration. So once all of those things have left you, the Lord will still be there with you. And so the Lord is our shepherd. I will not fear. He should be our portion. It is his presence that we should treasure above all things. And while we can say that theologically, I'll be honest with you, existentially and practically, none of us are born into this life treasuring God above all things. We have to go through a treasure change. We must go through a treasure change. Every single one of us, none of us, regardless of how theologically replete, regardless of how sound, regardless of how well Christianized, regardless of how well catechized, regardless of how many years you've spent in the church, regardless of how good you may think your heart is, not a single one of us wakes up any, every, any given morning treasuring the Lord above all things. It is a change that must be brought about in our lives. We are all at some point the proverbial prodigal son who wants to experience full self-actualization right here and right now. And the Lord has to reveal to us the emptiness of that in order to get us to further and greater cherish his presence above everything else. So let's look at verses 17 through 23, to 24. Now, verses 17 through 24 is an interesting uh, turn of events. So you now see the prodigal son in the first set of verses who has gone from having it all to having nothing, barely having his own dignity because he's getting ready to eat the slop that the pigs feed on themselves. And then in verse 17, it says this. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father. One of the things that we see here is not only will the Lord show us the emptiness of anything that we pursue for fullness apart from his presence, but he will also show us the fullness that comes from choosing a lifestyle of repentance. He'll show us the fullness that comes from a lifestyle of repentance. Now, when you hear that word repentance, I don't know what you're thinking, but, but uh, I believe that in many of our lives, we view repentance as just sin avoidance. And that's just one side of the coin. In other words, it's not as if we are just navigating down the highway and we see a pothole and we drive around it, or we recognize we made a wrong turn and we just decide to correct it. That's not repentance. Correct, uh, 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 if we're navigating in life, repentance is best free, framed as a total and complete U-turn, not just dodging obstacles. In our lives, if all we view is a lifestyle of repentance is just constantly saying that I'm sorry or just constantly trying to avoid the pinch and the consequences of sin, but we don't have the other side of the coin, which is also an active pursuit and love for God's presence, we're really not experiencing real repentance. We're just experiencing sin and consequence management. Risk management is what we're doing, not repentance. I want you to hear these verses. It's uh, uh, Psalm 16, 11, where the Lord says, 
you make me, excuse me, where Paul, or excuse me, the psalmist says, you make me to know, excuse me, make me to know you, me the, in the, the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand, there is pleasure evermore. The compelling force behind repentance should be a deep pursuit of being with God, not just a desire to avoid doing bad things morally. And so uh, the Lord will show us the fullness, again, the fullness uh, of life uh, uh, that comes from a lifestyle of repentance where we're pursuing after him. And this is what the, uh, one of the ways that the Lord changes our treasure. He changes our treasure because if you don't have that full and complete picture of the lifestyle of repentance, what you may pursue is just the morally consistent life, but not the repentant life, right? So the repentant life is one that chases hard after God, not just tries to navigate around moral pitfalls. But look carefully at the ways in which this lifestyle of repentance shows up or, or, or the evidences of it. In verse 18, the prodigal son says, I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. Notice that the prodigal son recognizes that sin has both a vertical heaven and a horizontal before the father uh, uh, um, um, uh, ramification. Right. And so the first thing is that a lifestyle of repentance recognizes how sin impacts both vertical and horizontal relationships. But also a lifestyle of repentance recognizes something else found in verse 19. It says here that I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your higher servants. It recognizes the vertical and horizontal dynamics or impacts of sin, but it also refuses to let the weight of sin delay my return. Look at how even when the prodigal son looked at himself as not being worthy of the father's fellowship, he didn't allow the weight of that sin to leave him where he was. He rose from where he was and he went to the father, even though he didn't feel like he was worthy. How many of us will admit, I know I will be the first to admit that there are times when I have gotten far from the Lord and I am feeling myself in my sin and I enjoy somewhat of the pity where I am and I paint this picture of how unworthy I am to approach God and that story or that narrative of unworthiness leaves me at a place where I am not getting up from my sin and going hard after God. How many people have allowed the adversary to whip you with that narrative where you know where you need to be, but you refuse or you delay getting there because you think perhaps you can maybe clean yourself up where you currently sit before you make your debut or your presence or your pursuit back to God. This is a lie. We should always, the moment that the Lord, through conviction, through the Holy Spirit, makes us aware of our unworthiness, run toward him, but don't let the weight of our sin cause us to stay where we are. Uh, the lifestyle of repentance recognizes the impact of sin on both my vertical and horizontal relationships. The, the, the lifestyle of repentance refuses to let the weight of sin delay my return to fellowship with the Father, but it also does something else. Look at verse 20. Look at verse 20. And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion, ran, embraced, 
and kissed him. This is an incredible visual. This is an incredible visual because a lifestyle of repentance allows us to experience the fullness of joy in God's presence in this way. We realize the undeserved, unrelenting, unconventional, and unmatched love of God that is found in Christ. The book of Romans put it to this way, put it to us this way in, in very distinctly, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were still a long way off, that Christ died for us. In other words, God is looking for us. And so this, this, this son is, is, he's barely on his way and the father sees him a long way off. And his love for this, for his son, this, this lost son is so unconventional. It was considered in Jewish culture to be shameful for an older man to run. And the Bible says that this older man saw his son afar off and he didn't stand at the, at the, at the gate of the entrance of their property with his arms folded and patting his foot with a scowl on his face. But it says that he pulled up his garments and he ran toward his son. Such an undignified kind of love. But that's the same kind of love that the father has for us. We, 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 we aren't able to make a move toward him without him making a move toward us. And then the father runs to us and he, I mean, he really just ravages this young man with his love. And we need to recognize that this love is undeserved. And that's what the lifestyle of repentance does. It, it allows us to, 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 to truly treasure God's presence because we recognize how completely undeserved this love is that the father shows us. But this love is not only undeserved, it is unrelenting. Look at how the young man makes one move and the father makes four. All the, the, the prodigal son does is say, I'm just going to arise and go to my father. And the father does four things. He does one and the father does four things. He comes, he comes, he sees him, he has compassion, he runs, he embraces him, and he kisses him. I mean, he lavishes the young man with love. Uh, the Bible uh, tells us this in Ephesians chapter 3, verses two, uh, uh, verse 20 and following. It says that the Lord is able now unto him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. So here it is. The prodigal son is making his move of repentance toward the father and the father meets him and raises him, raises the ante. In other words, he meets the son in a way that is exceedingly abundantly above all that the son could ever ask or think because the father is fully ready to receive him as a son and not as a servant. The Bible goes on to tell us in verses 21 through uh, 23. Look at this. He says, um, as the son goes, as the son says to the father, father, I've sinned against you. I've sinned. I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. So he makes this one more move of repentance. And what does the father say? He says, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Bring a ring and put it on his hand and shoes and put it on his feet and bring the fatted calf and we will kill it and let's eat and celebrate. Again, as the son makes one more move, the father makes five more moves. Bring a robe, bring a ring, bring shoes, bring the calf. Here's my son and he is back. Now, I want you to take very particular note at how the father is responding. Because this repentance, again, recognizes how sin wrecks both vertical and horizontal relationships. It refuses to let the weight of sin uh, cause me not to move toward God or to stay in my, pl my place. 
The lifestyle of repentance realizes that love is undeserved, unrelenting, unconventional, and unmatched in God. Uh, the lifestyle of repentance also, as it moves toward God, it is prepared to receive restoration that only God can provide. It is prepared to receive a kind of restoration that only God can provide. As he throws his arm around his boy and he puts on this new robe and he puts on his ring and these shoes and, and fires up the grill to put on the fatted calf, I want you to take note of one little single subtle detail back earlier in our story. Where did the ring come from? Where did the robe come from? Where did the shoes come from? I want you to understand that earlier in the story around verse 13, it says that all that the son had, he gathered and went away on a far journey, which means the ring, the robe and the shoes. That's not like some old stuff that he had left in a trunk beside his bed. That's not some some clothing that he had in the closet that he forgot to take. The Bible says all that he had that he took, which means that the ring, the robe and the shoes are not his. They are not his. And this is this beautiful emblem of what the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 13, verse 14, to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify his desires. It's also emblematic of the fact that we don't have a righteousness of our own, that it is the father who is clothing us in a righteousness not our own. That is that is that is giving us, making us joint heirs with Christ, giving him a ring that is not his own. He brings him back into full fellowship and says, man, you are part of this family. You are still still my heir. You are not a servant. And he put shoes on his feet that are not his own. The Bible tells us beautiful are the feet of those who bring glad tidings or that bring the gospel. And so I believe that this triple clothing of the son is really emblematic of what the father wants for us, that once we experience the deep treasure of not having our own righteousness, not having our own inheritance, but being made joint heirs with Christ, then we put on shoes and we are to go out and to socialize this great treasure that we ourselves have found in Christ. Um, this is how the Lord wants to change our treasure. Every single time that I find myself in a position of forgiveness, do not get stuck in a pity party. Run back to the Father that we might experience a new aspect of his great treasure and how he restores us. Every aspect of, this is so interesting, every aspect of the prodigal son's depravity, the father addresses. He had squandered all of his wealth. He didn't have any clothes. So, but the father addressed it. He didn't have any shoes, but the father addressed it. He didn't have any uh, further inheritance. Uh, he didn't have any family connections, so to speak, but the father addressed it. And this is exactly what the father wants to do in fellowship with him is every aspect of our depravity, regardless of how it manifests, he wants to address. He wants to envelop, but how does he address it? Not with the righteousness or a resource of our own. He addresses it with resources that he gives uh, rather than with resources that we have wrought for ourselves. Every pursuit of fulfillment, I, I want to say this, every pursuit of fulfillment is going to lead me face to face with the Father. Every pursuit. It is either going to lead me face to face with the Father by way of devotion, because I'm going to come back to him, or by default, because I will be judged by him. Every pursuit of fulfillment will, will, will result in this face to face meeting with the Father, with the face to face meeting with God in some way, either, either in joy or in judgment. Every pursuit of pleasure, every pursuit of fulfillment in this life is gonna lead me to a face-to-face -face encounter with the Father in some kind of way. And so it, it had better be ours that we do it in devotion and repentance rather than in judgment and regret. So um, as we look at our final stretch of verses, uh, verses 25 through 32, 
Let's read. It says, now his older son was in the field and he came and he drew near to the house. And when he heard the music and dancing, can you imagine that? You're out working in the field, you're coming up to the house and you hear the DJ, uh, you know, Everybody who's glad that the son is back, yeah, 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 give it up for the prodigal. You know, he's back, the younger son. Put your hands in the air just like you just don't care. And the son is like, what is going on? Why are we, why are we got a DJ? Why are we firing up the, 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 the big green egg or the Weber or whatever is your grill type, right? Why are we having this big party out here? And one of the servants comes to the brother and says, oh, man, your brother who had left home, remember, your younger brother? He's back in your part, and your dad is throwing a big celebration for him. And the Bible tells us, in verse 28, but he um, was angry and refused to go in. And then his father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, not, answered his father this way, look at the many years that I have served you. I have never disobeyed your command, yet you have never given me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. And then, uh, uh, and, but this son of yours, who has squandered your property, your wealth, on riotous living, on, on prostitutes. He comes home and you're gonna give him a party? Come on, dad. And this is what's happening in the, in the heart and the life. And I, and I believe that, that while some of us, many of us, all of us, at some point have occupied uh, uh, the, the, the portrait or the role of the prodigal, we've also occupied the role of the older son here. And so the Lord has had to work with changing our treasure as well by showing us not only uh, the emptiness of pursuing fullness separate from God's presence or the fullness that comes with choosing a lifestyle of repentance, but also the Father must show us the blindness of self-righteousness, which actually devalues God's graciousness. This is our third and final point. So when you consider this, I want you to look uh, uh, at two things. Look at just kind of uh, look at the anger of the son. Look at his emotions. His emotions says he refuses to go in. Well, why would he refuse to go in? This is his brother, right? This is his long lost brother. But apparently his long lost brother's return does not evoke joy. It evokes anger. Well, what could bring about that kind of emotion at the recovery and the, re and the, and the repentance and the return and the safety of one's own blood brother? What could cause one to be angry? I'll tell you what it is. That when you listen to the brother's words or look at his anger, it is because he treasures performance more than he does people. I mean, when he went to the father and, 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 and disclosed why he was angry, he says, hey, I never left home. I've been with you for years and you've never given me a party. You've never, you never brought out the fatted calf for me be on the lookout for the evidences of self-righteousness in all of our lives. Again, when I find myself being angry, when I see the recovery or the repentance of people that I don't believe to be worthy, check ourselves because it means that we're suffering from the blindness of self-righteousness. And we're valuing our performance over people or we value performance over people. But also look at what the older brother said. He says, man, I have been serving you for several years. In our memory, when we suffer from self-righteousness, we're always taking score. We're always creating a ledger. And that ledger somehow tells us how much the Lord owes us. 
Consider for a moment the blindness of self-righteousness. Not only does it create a scoreboard or a ledger that says how much the Lord owes us, but also look at what the work of the brother's imagination. You see, what the brother is saying to himself is, if anybody should be getting a fatted calf, it should be me because I never left. In other words, when we, when our imagination gets a hold of the grace of God, it can warp it. Or when we develop a works-based idea. So works actually warps our understanding of God's grace until it looks like wages. In other words, God, you owe me this. You should repay me this based on my current performance. And that is a warped view of why we work for the Lord. We work for the Lord because the Lord has first worked for us. We love the Lord because and because the Lord has first loved us. The Lord doesn't owe us anything. So when we look at this brother, we see the things that he treasures and his treasure needs to change because he treasures self-righteousness. He believes that it is his performance that warrants him the favor and the love of the father. But the father corrects him and says, you have always been with me and everything that I have is yours. There's no compromise to your inheritance. I'm not taking anything from you to give it to him. And so self-righteousness, even when we have nothing to lose, we look out for behind our eyes and believe that there are others out there that don't deserve nearly as much as we do. And it can, it can creep up and seem very logical, and we can store up in our hearts and minds for years. I mean, the, the, the older brother probably, had his younger brother never showed up back home, would have never ha had this aspect of his heart revealed. And, I, and I'll say this even to us. There are probably times in our lives when, when we never knew that we felt some kind of way until we saw a person experiencing the favor of God that we don't think deserved it. And then suddenly we start registering in our minds all the good that we've done, all the things that we've done, all the relationships, all the gospel that we've shared, or all of the, you know, the, the, the lunches we've passed out, or all of the cookies that we've baked, or all of the, uh, the refugees that we've served, or all of the people that we've touched, and all the mission trips that we've gone on. We start creating this calculus that says, how can God be blessing this person like this? Look at my resume of service. Don't let yourself fall into the trap of self-righteousness. Uh, and it's on deck for all of us. But, it, but, but God does this. He exposes self-righteousness and he exposes emptiness to get all of us to change what we actually treasure. Look at what the father treasures. He has a treasure too. The Bible tells us that the father, once his son returns, brings out the fatted calf and he slaughters the fatted calf on behalf of the son who has returned. We oftentimes think of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ as his sacrifice through the, the, through the lens of its great work and that it's substitutionary, which it is. The, the, the fact that it's necessary, which it is, because it satisfies the wrath of God and that it's propitiatory and that it transforms the, the wrath of God into the, to the, to the great wealth and grace of God toward us, which it is. But the Bible also tells us that it pleased the Father to please the Son. It was a celebration of God's great uh, um, value and treasure in his people. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 10 reads this way, Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. Uh, when, you make, uh, when you make him a restitution offering, he will see and he will his seed and he will prolong his days by his hand. And the Lord, uh, the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. It pleased the Lord to crush the son. It pleased him to do it on his behalf. What treasure does the Lord have in those who place faith in his son, Jesus Christ? What treasure does God have in his children? What treasure does God have uh, uh, on repentance? What treasure? It pleased him to sacrifice the son? This is crazy. Uh, look, look again. 
the calf, the robe, the return and the restoring of the young brother to a place of majesty that was not his own. Right? Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 and following. For it was fitting for he uh, by whom all things exist to bring many sons to glory that he should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Uh, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all of one source. And that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. So here it is. The older brother is ashamed to call the younger brother brother, but not Jesus. He's not ashamed to call us brother, even though he is perfect, even though he has never left the father, even though he has never violated the father's will. He does not stand with his arms folded saying, why are these human beings being granted such grace? He is nothing like the older brother. He is like a true and wonderful brother. He is in no way ashamed to call us brother. Look at the beauty of how God treasures those who are coming to redemption. Look at how God treasures his people. Man, this is incredible. The prodigal, the prodigal son had to have a change in treasure. His, his treasure was one of self-actualization over salvation, but the Lord showed him how empty self-actualization was, and then he returned to a place of salvation. The older brother treasured the redemption Excuse me, he did not treasure the redemption of others over his own self-righteousness. But the Lord is hopefully helping him to see now that this is a worthy thing to be celebrated. I'll never forget when my son was much younger. Um, uh, he didn't have an allowance. He didn't have a job. Uh, but he had uh, something that he treasured greatly. There was this brand new game that had come out that he wanted to acquire. And uh, I remember telling him, I was like, nah, I'm not going out and paying for that. We've already got, you know, multiple versions of video games that you should be satisfied with. And I'll never forget, he went downstairs to the ottoman in our family room, which is like a storage ottoman, and he pulled out the drawer, and he looked at all of the games that he had formerly treasured, and he took out each one of them and said, all right, Dad, I'm ready to go to GameStop. I'll trade these in. I'll give these away in order to get this one game. And there were multiple things that he was prepared to trade in order to build up the value to get that. I wonder how many of us when presented with the better of the best of what God has to offer are willing to trade and to exchange and to give up and to get rid of the other things in our lives in order to get the one thing that God has for us that is best. Is our treasure changing? It should be. The change of your treasure, the change of my treasure is not a single moment in time. It is a process that God is taking us through where he is regularly peeling back the emptiness of the things that we currently pursue and also the self-righteousness uh, that we currently hold on to. We are both of the sons in the story. We are never the father. The father is the one whose love is unrelenting, unconventional, unmatched, and just, un, uh, just, a, just, a, just, a, just an uncanny kind of love that he shows toward us. Do we treasure that? I'll be honest with you. You can read it all you want to, but it's not until you realize it through God exposing the emptiness of other things we pursued and also exposing our self-righteousness so that we can fully appreciate and value his graciousness. It's not until the Lord changes our treasure that we come to treasure him the way that we really should. Do you have any change? Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we come before you this morning, thanking you and praising you for your great grace and mercy and challenging our treasure. Help us in Christ to see the deep treasure that we have and how much you treasured us. May we, Lord God, over the course of our lives, how many days we have left, change treasure. May we regularly make the trade. May we regularly cash in, put down, and leave alone the things that we have treasured more than you. Reveal them to us, whether they be self-righteousness or whether they be self-actualization and pursuits of emptiness, Lord God. Show us 
where we need to have a change in treasure. This is our earnest prayer in the matchless of name of your holy son, Jesus Christ. Amen. I want to offer you the following application. I'd love for you to just kind of maybe sit down in your life and ask yourself, are you a person who is treasuring self-righteousness? You believe you're in a good place and hey, um, you know, you've got something good coming to you and you ought to have it. Or are you a person that has very transitory uh, things that you're chasing in life and the Lord is just systematically revealing their emptiness? Regardless of where you are on that train, on that change uh, kind of trajectory or paradigm, I want to beg and ask you, I want to beg and ask you to just ask the Lord to show you, is there anything in your life? What is the, what is the thing? There is something in all of our lives until we get face to face with the Savior. What is the one thing in my life or the two things, Lord, that I'm treasuring that needs to be changed right now? Ask him that.